0: So last time uh, we were together, we, uh, did we get already into a discussion of memory and place, or was that some, uh, did we stop just short of that? If you don't remember, it's okay, because obviously I am not quite certain either, but th- that has more to do with my kind of mingling together the two sections of the class.
1: I never got to the uh, haunted places. Gotcha, okay.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, that was sort of where I went.
0: Got it, okay. And that's what, yeah, that's what I was wondering if we had gotten to that or not. Okay, uh, and I think we did kind of maybe read through those two quotes relatively quickly um, at the end of the last session. And, and the general gist of them um, was simply to Bring to mind um, and open up a discussion about this correlation between uh, place and memory, and we'll move into today a little bit of a discussion, hopefully, about the relationship between place and community. Um, there's a little bit of Wendell Berry here for us to consider, um, but these three things strike me as being really uh, deeply interwoven. So, so place and remembering and community um, are three things that I think. We'd be hard pressed to kind of talk about one without the other and to, uh, to distinguish them too, um, too um, sharply. And, and one interesting way of getting into the question of, of community, which we uh, maybe can come back to in just a moment, uh, is, is again this question of, of virtual community, um, this idea of a community that exists without specific reference to a shared place. Um, and I think that offers us an interesting sort of point of, um, of comparison or contrast whereby we might then be able to think a little bit about what is unique to a community that takes shape uh, in, in a particular place, um, again, by thinking of it in, um, in contradistinction to the sort of thing that we have here, for instance, uh, which is just fine, but again, a little bit different. Um, so. All that said, let's maybe come back to this question of of place and memory, and I'd offered you this uh, quote from um, the French theorist Michel Desertot, who uh, at times can be a little bit impenetrable, uh, but I thought that his reflections here on on place and they're grounded actually uh, place and memory, but they're grounded here actually in his discussion of of walking and how we walk a place and. Uh, part of the background, not that it's terribly important, uh, Deserteaux is trying to understand some of the ways in which ordinary people um, sort of resist the patterns that are imposed upon them. Uh, and he talked about walking and, and how in walking, we have a certain kind of uh, freedom uh, to navigate a place on our own terms. And that leads them to this brief consideration of, of memory uh, that we have in this quote, which again, is just me sort of summarizing uh, a couple of paragraphs from Deserteau. From and I was actually looking to, um, to share this screen, but um, unfortunately something has gone wrong with that. Um, so I will desist. But you have it, and so you can read along with me if you like. Um, and and again, we're not. I, let me not even read the whole thing. But right, it's this idea that you you walk around the place that's familiar to you, and you're able to to call up memories. Uh, he suggests the metaphor of haunting, right? So this idea that you um, you call you can conjure, right? You can conjure up memories of things that you have done, people you have known, events that have transpired, and they're sort of and, and they're in a real way sort of connected to a place, right? So. Uh, if you visited Pascals, for instance, and, and you, you know, frequent it often during your college years, uh, you may remember a specific conversation that you had at a particular table and, and passing by that table, will recall the conversation to mind. And, and that's just one you know, very easy example, given a space that, that most of us have at least um, uh, been in at some point or another. Uh, and then there are, you know, there are more, uh, pro- you know, maybe more significant uh, play- places that hold our memories. Um, I think it was in the in-person class that I did talk a little bit about something like a childhood home, and how a childhood home can um, really anchor our lives in an interesting way. I, I meant to call it up, so I just have to rely on memory here. Uh, but this um, line I read recently about how there are only ever two places where we actually can can think of ourselves as sort of fully. Uh, at home, and, and the author suggested that those are, one, our childhood home, and, and two, our gravesite, And so it's a little macabre, um, but um, there, I think there was something something there, at least with regards to how, how a childhood home can um, really haunt us, not necessarily in a negative way, depending, of course, on what has happened there, uh, but there re- remains a really important part of who we are. Um, and I had shared how I had recently uh, driven by my childhood home in miami on a, on a trip a few weeks back and and pointed it out to my uh, little girls um, for which of course there's very little resonance at this stage in their life and, and maybe ever but you know i can look in and I, I see my bedroom window um driving it's a little cul-de-sac you know so i was a sort of uh, early 80s cul-de-sac kid um and uh, the park that i played and that sort of thing and uh and it does feel like you reconnect with a part of your life in an interesting way uh, and so having said all that, just uh, to kind of prepare the ground, I'm curious if you have any reflections on, on, on place and memory in this way and its relationship or um, anything that, that this short little discussion kind of brings to mind as you think about these, um, these questions or this relationship.
2: One of the childhood uh Places that I recall was my grandmother's house in the first of Kansas, and it's, it was uh, mm-hmm. odors there. Uh, she would almost always have coffee and some kind of a chicken broth going, and that mm. odd combination. Mm-hmm. When I smell those things now, I'm kind of taken back to this location that I haven't visited in 50 years or more. You
0: know. Yeah, and, and that, that connection it actually came up in the in person class uh, briefly the connection between scent. Uh, and yeah. memory also is very, um, very interesting, and and one that I think a lot of us have have some kind of relation to. And, and it's funny you mentioned. Gra- I have a I basically kind of grew up in my grandparents' house uh, as a child. My uh, you know parents worked, and so my my grandparents uh, did a good bit of uh, of raising as far as my early childhood was concerned. And yeah, definitely a lot of of memories and scents and uh, perpetual cooking, uh, which is interesting <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious if um, we had talked a little bit about identity uh, or our sense of self, uh, our understanding of our own self. Um, d- how do you think these sorts of things play play together, or do you see a connection amongst these things that um, that might be interesting? Um, wondering even if uh, if maybe you have a, dis- a different sort of experience where um, you know somebody hasn't grown up in a childhood home, right? Somebody moves a lot between one and five and seven years of age, uh, maybe you don't have quite the same sort of relationship to that, I don't know.
3: When I was a kid, our school mascot was the Huskies, and I'm still a Husky. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't accept any future mascot moved when I was nine years old, and it was supposed to be the Tuskers because of elephants. I was like, no, I'm still a Husky, guys. (laughs)
0: So. <laughs> that, that's interesting. Um, is that Connecticut? Connecticut Huskies? Or what, what is that?
3: No, uh, this is, it's West Harrison. It's
0: okay. Oh, okay, okay. All right.
1: That's interesting, David. That reminds me of um, my father-in-law and uncle-in-law, I guess. They went to uh, high school, and it was uh, Greensboro Senior High School. For some reason, and I, I think it may have been with uh, integration in the 60s, all these new schools came up, and uh, they decided not to call it uh, Greensboro Senior High, High School anymore. They named it after somebody Grimsley, I don't know, some name. Anyway, <laughs> but it was like for those the classes that were still, that had grown up with it, or at least the first couple years with it being this name, that was always, that school was always that. For a senior, it was never Grimsley or whatever it was, and they would make a big point. Sometimes I think obnoxiously, at least as it was told
0: to me, yeah. Um, But it's like, it was always that, you
1: know, even if they change it, we'll always remember it as, as that. And I think you see that as like, you know, um, certain nostalgia or certain memories of like, that building will always be this business or this restaurant to me, even if it's changed. Three different times. Mm. This happened, I get, this happens in Gainesville a lot at the auto channel pressure. You know, it's like it will always be this. Um, because I I guess that maybe that helps like preserve the memory. But I guess that's tied in the tied in with like schools and
0: mask stuff. yeah, I wonder if it is a matter of um, if, I guess the question is why would we crave that kind of um, of consistency? Or, or why would, because I think this is familiar to us, this idea that, well, this is what it was and this is how I know it. Um, and even to make a, a, a you know, a, a semi-big deal about it, um, even if only kind of half-playfully or, or, um, or facetiously, you know, suggest some maybe desire for continuity, for stability, or at least the, the way we personally relate to a place uh, and, and almost desire it for, to, to remain what it is as we knew it maybe suggesting the kind of continuity um, of community that we crave, or just some some fundamental continuity. Let me briefly, I think, Brian, were you about to say something?
4: Yeah, I was yeah. going, and I, I, it's related to that. Yeah. A, a twist on it. Uh, I think of, right, I imagine, actually, you might not know because of um, your uh, sort of the novelty of Gainesville to you, but really, yeah. right, like, uh, um, Gail Lemmering on campus, right? For the longest time, it's called North-South. Oh. And uh, you donate enough
0: money get to rename a road or whatever interesting Um, yeah uh and but like so people who call it north south like i think in addition to like oh that's how i remember it there's a status right like i know Mm -hmm. Gainesville
4: better than you
0: do. yeah whatever i i wonder
4: if like how much of that is like tied into the rootedness like i've been here longer or my roots go deeper and so i know Mm. the true Mm. story or like i i know things that you, you can't know or whatever uh, it's half page, but it went
0: my head. No, that's really interesting. And um, I mean, the way you describe it suggests to me what I've, you know, for a while now, just sort of thought of um, as sort of the, the his, hipster sensibility, which is that there's always some, some deeper, older, more obscure layer of something uh, to which we have access that, that does act as a sort of status signifier, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think that's certainly something. I mean, that's very interesting. I had no idea that that's, this is, in fact, news to me. Um, I assume that that's what it had been. Um, I mean, two things are interesting to me. One is that you go from this very simple geographic nomenclature, right? North-South. Um, and then, or, or, and now it has a kind of name. And as you suggest, I suggest it's because that person gave a lot of money uh, at some point or another to, uh, to the university. Maybe there's something else going on and I don't need to be this cynical, but um, but that, um, that difference is, is itself kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I think there is some status there. It, it is one twist on or one l- wrinkle to the, to the dynamic of a sense of belonging. One, I think it creates a kind of community, right? Uh, I knew it when, you know, and, and all of those who did likewise know it when have all of a sudden there's a kind of camaraderie that emerges out of that, right? Uh, oh, I, if I remember it and you remember it too in this way, it kind of binds us together in an interesting way, but by creating this distinction between we who remember and they who don't, right? Or, or we who had this experience and they who don't. So it, um, maybe it always, you know, it, it suggests this, um, this twofold nature of, um, or, or double-edged uh, nature of the, of, the, of the quest for community. Is that you you build a boundary that always sort of leaves somebody out um, of of some you know of of necessity Um, and that's one interesting way in which that manifests itself yeah so that's that's a good observation I was going to just bring up the last quote on there by an old uh, early mid-20th century theologian named Paul Tillich um, and I ran across this when I was doing some work on the question of time. And he says here that the mystery of the future and the mystery of the past are united in the mystery of the present. Our time, the time we have, is the time in which we have what he calls presence. But how can we have presence? Is not the present moment gone when we think of it? Is not the present the ever moving boundary line between past and future but a moving boundary is not a place to stand upon if nothing were given to us except the no more of the past that is of course the past that is no more and the not yet of the future we would not have anything we could not speak of the time that is our time we would not have presence um, this is a, a, almost like a rehashing. Augustine does a very similar thing in the Confessions when he talks about time, um, when he thinks about how you know, time is this very fine moving edge between what is going away and is no more because it's gone or is not yet because it's still future. And it is interesting to sort of think about what is the present exactly and to try to stabilize it uh, in this way, in a, in, a, in a merely chronological way, right? With reference only to time in a temporal way um, it becomes very difficult to think about what 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 are we occupying exactly. Um, but I think what the, the reason is um, I thought I, I'd include it here is this idea that the, the question of what can stabilize right if nothing were given to us except the no more of the past we would would not have anything we would not speak of it. But what we do have in a sense is a is a, is a physical environment. In other words, I. The dynamic that um, Tillich and and maybe even Augustine lead us to sort of conjure up of of trying to grasp the present, as it were, and hold on to something that is always kind of slipping through our hands seems to be something uniquely the case when we think of of time in a merely abstract way, right, in terms of consciousness, rather than um, thinking about foregrounding place instead of time right so when we think about time as a, as as what we inhabit it always slips away from us but if we foreground place rather than time then I feel that you know our presence materializes in a more um, in, a, in, a, in a more steady way right maybe in a, in a more stable way does that make sense at all or any any thoughts on, on that because that goes back to the question of memory then, right to kind of connect the dots here right so memory um, if we think of it in merely abstract ways, is very evanescent. But when we do ground it in the materiality of space, of place, then it, it achieves a, a certain uh, durability, right? It, it, it can be call, recalled, there's a permanence to it, doesn't feel quite so fleeting. And so when we have lived in a place over time and we can remember you know, what it was called back then or we can point to a place and say, this is where I grew up, or this is where I met my wife, that sort of thing. Then that fleetingness of time is not arrested, right? Those times are still gone in a sense, but they are accessible in a way that I think gives them a kind of, of durability that, that stabilizes our experience of the self in, in a way that's in, that, that seems to me to be significant. So yeah, what, does that make sense?
4: It's kinda of what we said before is the it's why our understanding of a body is so important. Like when it's just, you know when, when it, if it's all in my head like, oh yeah, I know the past is behind me, and the future's ahead of you me, know, like, you know, what's this place I'm in right now? It's like, well yeah, it's just I'm not in my head of this body that's sitting here
0: Right. Yeah, right, exactly. So and I'm, I'm going to kind of move us forward a little bit, but feel free to, you know, kind of slow us down or, or, or um, you know, help a, have us you know, sit with something for a while if, if need be. Um, but I wanted to go on then because this is, in a sense, kind of closing out our, you know, our discussion from last week. I had pulled out, I had just, this is a very recent uh, article by um, a gentleman named Aaron Wren, who I don't know otherwise, uh, except for, for his writing this article called Storied Cities. Um, it appeared in... Um, in a publication called *Comment*, um, which I recommend to you, it's a Christian publication, and, and they they tend to publish pretty thoughtful stuff. And so he's re- he is reflecting here on this relation between history and place um, and memory. And so I thought, well, this is you know timely. And so here is the uh, you know I've pulled out basically just three paragraphs from it um, or three sections of it. And at the beginning, uh, he talks about this question of. the the sameness of places, right? So that we talked about very early on, right? So he says, it's been widely observed that there's an increasing sameness to cities today, a sort of neoliberal urban monoculture that swept the globe. Visit any city in the world and see the same boutique hotels, swank restaurants, outposts of global luxury brands, and so on. The travel guides published by the Uber Swank Magazine wallpaper are great for the cosmopolitan traveler, but also eerily similar from place to place. At the website The Verge, Kyle Chaikam has written about the rise of what he calls airspace, a sort of uniform global aesthetic promoted especially by Airbnb listings. In the United States, after visiting cities in all 50 states, journalist um, Oriana Schwint seems like the best way of pronouncing that, uh, wrote in New York Magazine about the unbearable sameness of cities in which every coffee shop seemed to feature the exact same decor right down to their IKEA lights. And he says, uh, the author Aaron Wren says, there is truth in this claim of uniformity. A global economy de- de- demands globally standardized products that can be graded and traded. It demands a frictionless environment for business that requires places to present themselves as familiar to whomever from around the globe happens to arrive in them. Um, And especially if if the arrival is for a very brief visit, as is often the case, right, for this, you know, class of traveler, right? You don't quite have the time to discover the place. And so what you crave is something that will be familiar, immediately familiar. So you can sort of navigate your way there while you're there and then move on to the next place. Now he frames this as as, as, a, as an unfortunate development, and and his cure for it, and, and this is he goes on to talk about American cities specifically, um, and in how we might be able to discover the uniqueness of a place, so that um, you know Memphis doesn't necessarily feel like New York, and and you know gainesville doesn't necessarily have to feel like um, like birmingham etc so he says though urban cultures are often protean and dynamic consistent threads often run through them for the long haul in other words even though urban environments tend to change there's something that that if, if we're attentive to it kind of remains steady and sociologist uh, e digby e. botsell puts it like this as the twig is bent so the tree inclines or as freud was to teach us our adult lives largely repeat the emotional intellectual responses established in early childhood so in history the formative experiences of civilizations set patterns which successful generations forever seem to follow Uh, in other words there's something in the deep history of a place that does set something like a pattern which gets repeated and maybe it's like that for, for us in, in childhood and adulthood and our personal histories. Um, but the suggestion here is that that somehow happens um, for a place. And so finally then towards the end of the essay he says, so there are many ways cities understand and internalize their own history and identity. And, and this is what he's advocating ultimately is that, that, that citizens, citizens of a city Learn about the history of the city in order for the uniqueness of that city to become apparent to them. It's, it's that city's identity. Um, and so there are many ways that that history can be internalized uh, through myth, traditionally understood, through histories, through signature elements so overwhelming they saturate the people in place, and through civic rituals and traditions. But in many places, this history and culture remain elusive because most cities don't have that deep historical knowledge of themselves. They often fail to follow the ancient maxim, know thyself. Because they don't know themselves, they can't express what they are even to themselves and often assume there must be nothing there. This is a mistake because so many places do have a great history and a great identity and a great city like a great wine, must express its terroir. Well, it's a French word, so I won't even pro- uh, attempt to pronounce it correctly. Right? But uh, terroir is the um, the way that a place m- reflects itself in the wine. Right. So if you drink a wine, um, its distinctiveness arises from The geography of the place, the elevation of where the grapes are grown, uh, the soils of the uh, the soil and climate of of where the grapes are grown, all of that sort of is reflected in the taste. And so, likewise, he's suggesting the city um, has its sort of geographical characteristics that that are um, reflected in it. Um, And so, I thought this was again an interesting article. What it suggested to me is is for for example, we we take Gainesville. Gainesville has a history that I am not aware of it doesn't change the fact that it has a history, right? And so I have a choice, right? I can either, well, let me speak of Orlando, right? So, um, because I'm, I'm familiar with it and I can speak of it in a way that, um, you know, kind of takes us out of the the more um, immediate context of Gainesville here, uh, for better or for worse. So it's very common for people to, to sort of think about Orlando and think of it, one, as simply Disney World writ large, right? What is Orlando but Disney World or the theme parks more generally? Um, And and certainly, uh, yeah, if you're only there for a little while, there's there's truth to that. Right. But obviously, Orlando involves um, a great deal more than just um, than Disney World. But whether you discover that or not, because then there's the other layer of if if you sort of drive around the greater uh, Orlando area. Yeah, it is uh, one strip mall after another. Um, you know, it's a heavily urbanized environment. It's famously known for its high uh, commuter, or excuse me, um, pedestrian fatality rates, or it's a horrible place to walk because it's sort of built for cars. Um, it's, it, there's, there's something where one might kind of come to it desiring maybe to, um, to have a sense of rootedness, but find that always sort of elude the, to elude them. But if you, if you are attentive to it, right, there are all these small little communities that do have a really interesting history um, and, and interesting also maybe sometimes um, in, in dark ways, right? Because one of the things that I learned about um, Windermere, which is a community sort of just outside, or O'Coe, which is just outside of, um, or to the west of, of downtown Orlando, is that it, it happens to have been the site um, where I think the most violent episode of political violence happened in the United States um, where black voters were, were beat and killed uh, in great numbers in the early 20th century. I, I had no idea about this history until very shortly after, uh, before I left there. Um, and so there is a history there, right? Uh, there's a history in the place names. Um, there's uh, a history in the, um, in the, the, the way the cities are, are zoned and the way the communities show up. Um, the boundaries between communities. Uh, and there's, there's something there to be discovered, but there's a kind of, of work that needs to be done, right? And so similarly uh, for Gainesville here, right? It seems to me as somebody very new to the place that driving uh, east and west on, um, on university, crossing Maine one way or the other, you enter into two, 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 two very different worlds. Um, and it's very apparent that there's a history there to be uncovered, right? And it's a history that's still shaping, clearly shaping um, the nature of the city. Um, and so why is that, right? What's going on there? What, what, is it, what, what di- underlying dynamics, what decisions in, in uh, council meetings uh, two generations ago maybe have, have given to Gainesville this, this very distinctive char- character, right, characteristic and that's part of the community and and the interesting thing about memory especially if we think about the personal level and you know not necessarily pushing the kind of Freudian aspect too too uh, much but the idea that there are memories that are repressed right that we have things that are part of our biography that we may not be fully conscious of but have nonetheless sort of engraved themselves um in our in our being in our in our um in our person taken both as mind and body, you know, for example, interestingly, I'm not um, a counselor or a therapist in any way, shape or form, but listening recently to people talk about how we can find the roots of trauma. uh, We can better understand trauma as something that has not just made a mental mark or is not merely a matter of chemicals in, in the mind, however we conceive of that, but as something that, that is a memory carried in the body. And so for that reason, not always accessible to consciousness, not because it's sort of repressed in a Freudian way, but because it's, it's registered in a different part of our being that isn't always subject to our articulation um, or to our sort of conscious awareness. And so likewise, in a, in a sense, we can think of a city in that way, right? It, there's a material dimension to its body, right? we might speak of, of a city having a certain feel or a certain, um, you know, you, it brings things to mind or we can, we can articulate the identity of a, of a city maybe in, in words and rational uh, language, but at the same time, it has a materiality with something so concrete as, you know, how buildings are laid out, the way communities are, are arranged around certain pockets, the way a river uh, or a stream may run through it, and kind of shape the, the, the way that a city is laid out, right? It has this material dimension to it that it carries a memory that either we are aware of or not, but whether we're aware of it or not, it's, it's influence is still present, right? It's still part of the dynamics of, of city life in one way or another. And so that, that idea of memory being the past being active, and we either consciously remember it or we don't. But even if we don't consciously remember it, um, it's still f- sort of manifesting itself as an individual in, in our in our bodies and what our bodies carry with us. Um, but in a city with regards to a sort of material that is geographic but also built environment. Um, okay, so let me pause there because was, I was feel like it was just that was a long spiel. Um, any... Yeah, what are you, any thoughts along those lines or any questions that that raises or, or, yeah, or even whether you think that, you know maybe pushing this a bit too much.
2: When Red mentioned the uniformity of, of communities around the globe, around the country, it had several weeks ago it impressed upon me that the basis of that is usually an economic basis. Um, If there's a fortune to be made in some place, uh, then money comes in and begins to develop a community in a way that developers think everyone wants. And if your community is deficient in some way, maybe it lacks uh, natural resources or it lacks a uh, certain cultural element or it doesn't have a good workforce uh, or it doesn't have an infrastructure, then in that deficiency lies, it's preservation. People won't be interested in that place and it will stay pretty much the way it was. And I know a lot of small towns really um, strive for that preservation. They don't want the uh, the kind of uniformity imposed on their community. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that all of the communities that I'm familiar with all look the same because they've all got the standard number of Starbucks per block and, and uh, McDonald's and, and uh, other kinds of opportunities. Unless there's a deliberate effort to counteract that economic uh, impetus to to impose that uniformity, I think all of these communities are all going to look the same and lose all their character.
0: Right, and, there's, and, and it is, I think very often, um, the economic factor I think is uh, yeah, clearly very significant here. Um, being kind of connected to a global economy uh, transforms a place. And, and, and what, yeah, what strikes me is that there, there are costs to be paid. Uh, there's a cost to be paid to, to somehow avoid that. Um, you know, I've, I've driven to the Jacksonville airport on a couple of occasions from here. And so I take uh, you know Waldo Road up uh, to now. I forget the names of where You go through, but you go through these evidently, um, you know, communities that seem to me to 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 have been left out of whatever economic prosperity um, you know the current economy can bring to a place, right? And it's evident in sort of the, the decay of buildings, um, the way that you know the main streets seem sort of half abandoned. Um, and there's, there is, um, you, it does suggest that there's a cost to be paid for a community that wants to, re, you know, retain its history or that is unwilling or, or was never even given the opportunity to sort of tap into this, um, you know, larger economic, um, reality. So, yeah, I, I and I mentioned that only by way of saying, you know, we, we should, um, it seems to me that, you know, at least we should be clear eyed about what, resisting these economic imperatives might entail, um, you know, for, for a community.
2: I, I think of the communities up in the Dakotas that, uh, suddenly boomed yes. because of fracking and right. how that just collapsed and they, they come and go, Houston yeah. is probably a lot like that yeah. in some respects. Right. That they, they come in and develop the, the uh, to a r- ridiculous degree and then once the, uh that main feature is, is played out and everybody leaves. Yeah. Head to the next um, bonanza.
0: Yeah. It's not a bad segue to mention Wendell Berry here because it, um, although I didn't put this anywhere on here, I have another um, quote right at the very end of uh, the, the, the handout that I sent you today. Um, I was recently reading where he talks about boomers and stickers. Uh, and he <laughs> says, you know, Americans are two kinds of Americans, and, um, you know, obviously, every there are two kinds of X generalization um, can be subject to greater nuance. But he says, you know, boomers and stickers. And I don't think the, the idea is original with him. I think it's original with Wes ja- West Jackson maybe or a friend of his, um, another friend of his. But the, you know, boomers are those who are these sort of characters, caric- what you're describing to him, right? You, um, you're you just in search of uh, some, you know, economic hit, right? And you, you go and search for it and you, you're willing to sort of in a sense use a place for the sake of that economic gain. And as soon as it's been had, you're off to the next place. And then of course stickers suggest people who are, um, willing to, to stay put that have enough, what I think Barry calls an affection for the place that uh, is irrespective of whatever personal financial gain may be available to them. And so they, they're more, you know, more prone to stay put. Uh, but then also to treat a place with a certain kind of, uh, of respect that seeks to protect its integrity and not just subject it to, um, you know, to economic well-being. And so that distinction between Boomer and Sticker um, is interesting, or, or at least a useful one to kind of think about. And then the last, I, I will kind of point us then to that last um, quote that I have there, which is from an essay that uh, Barry wrote called Health is Membership. And it begins by talking explicitly about technology, but then says the question of community, um, it comes to the question of community, um, and I think in an important way, um, Barry says, "I am." Where he's sort of declaring his um, his uh, his priors, as it were. He Says, "I am, moreover, a Luddite." You will remember the Luddites are best known for uh, breaking the mach- the the autumn, what um, we would sort of think of early industrialized technologies that we're displacing workers by automating work, right? Um, and so he says, I am more of a Luddite in what I take to be the true and appropriate sense. I am not against technology, which is the way that word is usually used as a kind of slur, right? To say somebody's a Luddite is just to say they're you know, reactionaries against technology. But he says, I'm not against technology so much as I am for community. When the choice is between the health of a community and technological innovation and again, to, you know, to bring back uh, Tim's comments here, that technological innovation is often um, premised upon a certain kind of tech- economic opportunity, right? Or an economic, um, a larger economic project, right? So it's a kind of techno capitalist juncture. Um, and so he says it's, it's between, the, if the choice is between the health of a community and technological innovation, I choose the health of the community. I would unhesitatingly destroy a machine before I would allow the machine to destroy my community. And he says, I believe that the community, in the, f- the, the community in the fullest sense, a place and all its creatures is the smallest unit of health. And that to speak of the health of an isolated individual is a contradiction in terms. And that's that, that last thought I think is especially important because first of all, he defines community in this way, that community in the fullest sense is a place with all its creatures. Now, there, there, are, there are three elements then in that, right? When we think of community, I think we tend to think of it in terms of fellow human beings, right? My community is my friends, my family, my associates, the people I work with, my neighbors. And what we've done there is we've narrowed the idea of community simply to me and other human beings. Barry expands it in a twofold way, right? in two in two ways. He says the health, of, the community in the fullest sense is first a place, right? So it takes into consideration the the geography of that locale, right? The distinctiveness of that place as not merely the placeholder of people, but having an integrity of its own that is part of community in this fullest sense, and then all its creatures suggest to us not just human beings, right, but the, the wider diversity of living things that belong to this place. And so he says that is a community in the highest sense, in the fullest sense, I should say. Um, and then he says to, to speak of, the, of health in terms of an isolated ind- individual is a contradiction in terms, because in his view, the health of the individual is dependent upon the health of the community, right? So you can't really speak of the health of the individual if you are not also taking into consideration the, the community in the fullest sense in which that individual resides. And so the, the fullest sense of um, community in the fullest sense, right, is the, uh, what he says, the smallest unit of health. Right? You can't even think about the health of the individual unless you have thought about the health of the community. Um, so that you know, goes back to this question of a of, of place, its relationship, or gets us to this question of place and its relationship to community. Um, and and I want us to maybe you know we will we'll obviously need to kind of push this off um, the full this full discussion off till, till next week, um, but that at least I think gets us pointed in that direction, and and maybe we can talk very briefly um, in the few minutes we have left here about how we think about community in 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 a virtual sense right, and so. Is a virtual community? Oh, I'll just put it this way, recognizing that there are problems with putting it this way. But is a virtual community a real community? And tell me what you know. What are your initial thoughts along those lines?
2: I doubt that 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 could work unless you've had a, a personal connection prior to that, and you kind of coast on that capital of having known someone face-to-face, a virtual community might be possible uh, once that foundation is established. you probably need to be fed once in a while, too.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm hesitant to use the term, right? The, uh, there's a board game company I work for, uh, or like freelance a little bit in testing, and they call it the, like, our Discord community or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, and they, like, the main testers from the Philippines, right, where it's a very international group but I never use the word because it feels like it cheapens it. Hmm. Uh, and it, it feels readily apparent apparent when, um, when real life kind of invades. Um, so like, whether it's like, oh, they find out someone's transgender and then some people have really strong, like, oh, you lied to me this whole time. You said you were a girl, or if your politics come out, uh, people getting kicked out for supporting one candidate or another, right? Like uh, that, like, just would never yeah. have like, like, the false assumptions or the mistakes would never have been made if, if we weren't just avatars right and and so it it, it can be a a of the minds maybe or something but i just it, it lacks a depth i think to ever be considered community at least to, as i understand it yeah and i to add up to
3: that i'd say that commune is in the word community um i'm not sure what the word commune means I know it's also in communism, but I'm just not gonna go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> at any rate, it's—I would have to think—I would want to think more about what the word commune means. Um, but off the cuff, it feels like when we call something virtual a community. consistently meeting together and you're like actively trying to you're not actually trying to do life with each other you're just uh, having a discourse with one another really um and I think Brian said a convening of the minds um that makes a lot of sense to me where it's like we're sort of together but we're together in mind maybe spirit um in voice for certain possibly in at least seeing our floating heads um but apart from that we're not doing life together um we're not oh here's how i can use the word we're not in the commune
0: yeah yeah right (laughs) The, the the root there suggests something common right something commonly held um i mean the it's funny you mentioned you know as you're sort of trying to fish around for a word that works you mentioned discourse um, you know, the extremely online just sort of refer to the, you know, the public sphere as, as the discourse, capital D, you know, and and it is this interesting kind of, um, it's, it's sort of a, a revealing uh, nomenclature, right, that in in a virtual space, you're in a sense, you know, reduced to symbolic exchange, uh, whether it's with, you know, words or um, memes or gifs or images or whatever, but, um, but there is something there's a, there's a dimension of the fullness of our embodied experience that's lacking there, where you do tend to just get reduced to, to this, these terms of symbolic exchange, uh, which, you know, which we might just call the discourse, right? Um, so that's, yeah, that, that, that's a good, good observation. The, the, the only, you know, my, 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 um, I suggested maybe calling, you know, asking whether they're real or not is is I, not not the best framing of it, right? But uh, because of course, you know, of course it's real, right? It's something. Um, is it is it genuine? as it is it in its fullest sense, et cetera? You know, that's you know a different question. Um, but there are um, there's certainly you know anecdotally um, there's evidence that, that some people have found something genuine online, right? When they have not been able to the expression, you know, find their people in, in, um, in their immediate environment and their embodied relationships um, that they have maybe found those that they can relate to in a genuine way or even, um, you know, people who share maybe some common um, medical disorder or, or excuse me, rare medical disorder, right, and find in a, in a group that um, has formed online some kind of sense of, oh, you know what I'm going through. That's something that can be valuable. But there's something that that can happen online that I don't want to entirely dismiss, but nonetheless, that it is, it it has uh, you know online communities have have um, cut us off from some important element of of what we might think of as the the fullness of community. Um, And with that, I'm content to kind of pause. We're a little bit over our time, and then kind of come back to this next week. We only have two weeks left. so we're almost here at the at the tail end of things. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about community, um, and then I want to maybe finish up by thinking about uh, in in ways thinking about ways that we can maybe deepen our experience of place, uh, rather than you know focus on. I think was early on we was kind of focused on the things that um, can hamper our, our experience of place, would make it difficult to get a sense of place, and then in, in through the past two, three, four weeks we've been talking about various dimensions of place and identity and memory and kind of just turning that around, some of the importance of place and then maybe we can uh, go back to this or, or turn to at the end some very concrete or specific ways in which we can deepen our experience of place. So that, that'll be um, what, we, what we tackle in the next couple of weeks but we'll come back to this question of community and spend a little bit more time with it then.